This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. Dennis Arroyo is a double fellow. He's a fellow in the Corporate Fellows Program, but he's also an experiment. Uh, he is the first Asia Foundation visiting fellow that APARC uh, has had. And I must say, and I'm not just saying this because I'm introducing him, I really believe this, actually. He has been spectacularly successful. This is an indication of what the Asia Foundation Visiting Fellow Program can deliver. Uh, I'm an enthusiast. Uh, he has completed a paper uh, <clears throat> on the basis of which he will be speaking today, The Political Economy of Successful Reform, Asian Stratagems. Uh, I might quote the last sentence, if I could, in which <clears throat> he quotes a Korean proverb I assume it is a Korean proverb, we'll find out in a minute. Uh, which says, the land is limited, but imagination knows no bounds. And I think that's a pretty good description of the paper itself, which is extraordinarily creative, as I'm sure you will agree when you have heard it. His presentation will be today. Dennis Arroyo is presently on leave from his government position as Director of National Planning for the National Economic and Development Authority of the Philippines. He's held a number of consultancies with the World Bank, the United Nations, and a research, survey research firm, some of you may be familiar with, Social Weather Stations. <clears throat> his critique of the Philippine Development Plan won an award for the best analysis in 1994, I could go on. In the 1980s, moving back in time, he headed the movement for Philippine sovereignty and democracy and was very active in the anti-Marcos uh, activity of that decade. He has economics degrees from the University of the Philippines. But most important, in keeping with the Korean proverb, he has an extraordinarily creative mind, which you are about to enjoy. Okay, thank you. Uh, good afternoon, and thank you for squeezing in. Uh, my motivation for this study is that I come, yes, from the Economic Planning Agency in the Philippines, and we've often uh, seen our reforms defeated by politics. So I wanted to learn how do we, how do we outmaneuver the politicians. <laughs> How do we out Machiavelli the politicians? Hence this, uh, this topic. So the outline is, why is economic reform often politically uh, difficult? How did the great Asian leaders pull off their tough reforms? Then put them all together, a playbook for reformers, or uh, a toolkit of tactics, uh, a menu of maneuvers for these reformers. To start, the barriers can be grouped into these six classes, uh, ideological baggage, populist patronage, vested interests, lack of support from party leaders, bureaucratic inertia, and economic pain on the voters. On the first, the usual model of uh, settled planning, a massive state apparatus, entrenched party, but it's beyond uh, socialism. It's also on uh, protectionist regimes, the, the, mindset, the mindset problem, ideological baggage. 
patronage defined as dispensing favors or goods to voting groups to get their votes rather than to a wider society in general. Examples like jobs, civil service, uh, tax exemptions. The vested interests tend to want to corner the market, to control the market. They block imports, they close the market to new players, they corner procurement deals, and the phenomenon of uh, regulatory capture, or the control of agencies by the interests they are supposed to monitor. Lack of support from party leaders because politicians may not see beyond their short terms. And reformers in the executive may lack allies in, the, uh, in parliament. Or the government may be in, uh, in trouble and therefore on survival mode. Inertia, they want the status quo. They're content with job security, the easy life. Too many veto points in approval and uh, they succumb to public pressure, the bureaucracy. This is common, economic pain. They're often initially painful. For example, fiscal reforms, they entail raising taxes, lowering government spending, uh, privatization, laying off workers, downsizing. Uh, these are all sensitive uh, steps. So in part two, how did the Asian dragons, how did the, the leaders pull off these tough reforms? Um, I don't mention Japan here because uh, the Meiji era was so long ago, 1868, a long time ago. But China, wow, going through its, uh, the Great Industrial Revolution. India, the emerging high-tech power in the century. Thailand, its economy grew by, uh, by nine times in only 30 years. Then on and on, Vietnam's Doi Moi, or renovation, South Korea under Park, Malaysia under Matir, then uh, Lee Kuan Yew, all spectacular uh, cases. Uh, Deng Xiaoping, China. So it was uh, ideological baggage. A conflict between uh, the, the Chen Yun wing versus the Hu Yaobang progressives. And it came from the, uh, the death of Mao, in 70, well, uh, Deng's regime began, began in 78. So the policies that emerged were basically a compromise between the Chen Yun wing and the, the Hu Yaobang wing. So they were always gradual compromises. They involved Mao-style piloting because during the guerrilla war, Mao would pilot tactics in his base areas. So the same way the party got to pilot uh, uh, economic reforms, although in actual fact, the peasants did some pro-market violations and the party blessed these violations as official uh, pilot projects. The reforms created constituencies or new pro-reform vested interests. For example, the brigade leaders earned from the agricultural reforms. The cadres, they benefited from the the uh, TVEs, the township and village enterprises. The fiscal reforms, they allowed, Beijing allowed the local governments to retain more of their tax income. So therefore, with more pro-market reform, you had more, pro, you had more local growth, and therefore uh, a bigger tax stake. So it aligned their uh, interest. Then you had the uh, Chananmen, 1989, the massacre, the, the protests. 
in which case Deng's power weakened. So what happened was you had uh, party leaders, a, uh, a faction, trying to counter his reforms. So what he did was the Great Southern Tour. He went to the South and he um, to assert his economic agenda. Then they retooled the bureaucracy. They had a mandatory retirement uh, plan which swept away the old guard and brought in the, the younger pro-reform uh, officials. India. The main problem then before the 1990s was that it was all a tangle of anti-competition uh, licenses. They had state monopolies. They, had, um, they were uh, restricting foreign investments. So it's all a tangle of anti-competition licenses. So what happened was Prime Minister Rao appointed a non-politician as Finance Minister, Manoman Singh. And then the, the regional parties gave competition to the national parties, which weakened the hold of the national parties on the bureaucrats. So the bureaucrats got to learn that their reforms could survive um, for the long term. They thought now long term. This a quote phrased by Rob Jenkins, he devotes one chapter on this reform by stealth. A talent for obfuscation, the use of intentional, intentional ambiguity, in other words, a policy mumbling, uh, packaging change as business as usual. Example, um, the leaky PDS or public or the system for distributing subsidized rice, it remained what made obsolete by the RPDS or revamped uh, PDS. The make work programs to the poor serve the local land owning middle class. They're the make work programs for irrigation, uh, canals, for roads, they serve the land owning middle class. The banks were supposed to lend uh, a portion of their credit towards um, uh, special sectors or priority sectors, <coughs> but they got to stretch the definition to include uh, uh, bigger firms. The monopoly was broken to the back door. They allowed more coal imports. Vietnam, beyond ideology, you had uh, a fragmented leadership. Beyond pro-reform, after reform, you had the pro-Beijing versus uh, pro-Moscow, north versus south. They faced the crisis of the poor harvest and hyperinflation at that time. Uh, Doi Moi means uh, renovation. Uh, I like this phrase, uh, fence breaking. The government legalized violations, they blessed violations as pilot projects. Then they, they turned the SOEs, or state-owned enterprises, into allies, in effect. They, um, they sold shares of stock, they sold the stock, they sold the stocks of the SOEs to the public. But the actual buyers were the owners and workers of the SOEs themselves. So that way they got to formalize their ownership. And gerrymandering, creating new provinces to dilute the anti-reform vote. That is, they look for the anti-reform provinces, then divide them into two. One anti-reform section, one pro-reform section, so that got to dilute the anti-reform vote. In fact, the number of provinces rose by 60%. The gerrymandering. I'll focus uh, on a new one, ta one tactic by General Prem in Thailand. 
because he faced a milieu of many parties and forming fragile coalition governments. So they would position uh, with each other. Uh, it was all a port game. Okay, the, um, in effect, you had six veto players, six party veto players. So it's all about port. And uh, the port game got to stifle national reform. So he embarked on the port policy, policy compromise. That is, the deal was these technocrats were insulated from uh, the pork and politics, whereas the, the politicians could get the usual ministries, agriculture, industry, commerce, education. That was the pork policy compromise. Although I must add that after Prem, after he had Chati uh, Chai, Chandavan, taking over, this, this collapsed. South Korea, wow, growing 10% during uh, Park's time. But imagine, there was actually a time when South Korea was even weaker than the North. Park played the Cold War card. He sent uh, two divisions of Korean soldiers to fight in the Vietnam War. And they forged this alliance with big business. Actually, he put 24 leading businessmen under house arrest. What eventually made this deal, if you if you uh, sign on to my, my risky five-year economic plan, you can retain your, uh, your privileges. But beyond that, he had uh, the Seibun Undong, or New Village Movement, which gave him a rural base. So it was a, a town-country alliance. He, he got to tap the, uh, the rural base via the Seibun Undong. That is, they gave cement bags to each village, which uh, formed uh, projects, infra projects, uh, roads, schools, clinics, and all that. So that developed into a, a bigger movement. Then uh, uh, the bureaucracy. He offered, uh, the regime offered different compensation. That is, if you do well as military officials or as government officials, we'll, uh, we'll send you to become the CEOs of these uh, private sector firms or a second, a second career in the private sector. We'll send you to state-owned enterprises, and eventually you'll become, you'll join the, the wider private sector. Uh, Malaysia, uh, Matir inherited this problem of um, racial discord. It was a volatile ethnic mix. You had half were, uh, Mal were Malays, one-third were Chinese, and there was resentment by the Malays over the Chinese, they, uh, over their success. In fact, there are uh, past racial riots. So politics in Malaysia was all about uh, ethnic relations, distributing um, the goods to balance the racial relations. So what Mahathir did was to create an enclave, uh, a dual economy model. On the left-hand side, this enclave of FDI zones, foreign investment zones, which, yield, yield which uh, led to rapid growth. The growth yielded uh, tax revenue for uh, the pro-Malay policies. In turn, the old sector had high profits for the Malays, and then they, that fed uh, contributions to UMNO, or the main party. So put together, the FDI-led growth, elite loyalty to UMNO, all assured stability in the order. Singapore is now uh, the most dynamic economy in Southeast Asia. Uh, it's second only to Japan in per capita uh, uh, income. 
Although at that time, 65, they were really very vulnerable. In fact, if you go to YouTube, you can find this uh, video of uh, Lee Kuan Yew crying during independence because they were, they were kicked out of Malaysia. It's actually crying. And another crisis, the withdrawal of the British bases. Well, we must admit that it really is um, uh, paternalism for performance. The, uh, Lee would micromanage the, with Singapore. Well, uh, the PAP, the party, would perform very well in economics and, and social services. In turn, the, the electorate kept voting the PAP. When the British left their bases, Lee called, well, before that, he called an election to get the mandate for painful reform, uh, requ requiring sacrifices from both the, the workers and uh, management. Then they stressed tripartism, or the alliance between uh, government, labor, and management. And the mechanism for this was the NWC, or National Wage Council. Lee gave the people's stake in Nationville building via mass housing, via its CPF, its Provident Fund, and mass housing. In fact, I'll quote him um, in the China Morning Post. Singapore had no choice. We must have a defense capability. That means man must have something to fight for. He's got to fight for what he or his family owns. So we had to devise a system which gave everybody a home which he owns. So home ownership as the foundation for uh, nation building. We call this where the barriers in the previous slide, the barriers to reform. If that is uh, the defense, how do we play, how do we play offense? <coughs> if your defense is ideological baggage, you play this way. You package the reforms such as uh, measures to strengthen the party, reform gradually via win-win compromises, try reforms in part projects, then try fence breaking. You spin reforms, you spin violations as uh, pilot projects. You run on dual systems, you stretch definitions, you uh, do gerrymandering or tweaking the voting rules a la Vietnam. You take your case to the public. If the defense is patronage, appoint non-politicians for the key um, roles. Consider a port policy compromise. Then you may create um, uh, parallel versions of your, of your social programs. Direct programs for the poor to, to serve the, uh, the middle class. Create separate economic enclaves. If uh, vested interest, so break monopolies by the back door, stretch definitions, create new vested interest or constituencies of reform. If they're too strong, you may have to um, recognize them in an explicit, explicit economic partnership. If you lack support from the party leaders, begin reform far away, not in Beijing, but uh, far away in the periphery. Get the help of regional parties, align the interests of local governments with the national reformers. If they misbehave, use ODA and national funds to keep them in line. Turn to the masses and turn to the media as vital allies. I, I forgot to mention, um, when, Deng, when Deng Xiaoping went on his southern tour, the Beijing tried to ignore 
try to have a, a media blackout for the Southern tour. So what he did was to write uh, uh, for the Shanghai Daily us using a pen name of uh, Lu Faoping to overcome bureaucratic inertia again by projects, rationalize the bureaucracy, uh, nurture officials with uh, post-retirement incentives like a second career. I want to stress this. The greater the pain from economic reform, the more urgent are social programs, social reforms. Economic reform cannot stand alone. Social reforms buy time for economic reforms to work. And samples include the disabled undong, the housing, um, the housing program in the RPDS. Uh, construct mechanisms for greater public ownership. Set up a tripartism, tripartism out of Singapore. If confident, call elections to get a mandate for painful reform. Turn, you play, uh, the devil made, made you do it. You say, uh, it's an IMF imposition, it's a World Bank uh, imposition. Then finally, uh, consider tactics of, tactics of reform by stealth. Uh, I want to acknowledge my former, my uh, fellow government official, uh, Commissioner Henry Tatanes of the Philippines. He's also here. Uh, thank you. And thank you uh, for your time. Okay. Very concise. Any questions, comments? On the floor? You want to handle your own? Oh, sure. <laughs> or was it so persuasive? Okay, so there are so many things that uh, you mentioned. So which one you gonna bring to your government when you go back? <laughs> okay, I'm thinking of um, this uh, one, two, three punch. That is gradual reform, and, uh, and then advise the the new party to go on quick action, then back to gradual reform. That is, okay, gradualism, quick attack, gradualism. Uh, we begin by creating uh, constituencies of reform, mobilizing, um, <coughs> mobilizing people who benefit from the reform. Okay, creating alliances with the local governments, exposing the, the vested interests of the public via the mass media. Then we advise the 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 newly elected government go on quick attack over the vested interests. Then, after around four months. Uh, go back to a slow gear, okay. Uh, maintain uh, because so your enemies will interpret that as uh, as you slowing down, as you are a victory, a victory for them. Go back to compromises. So I'll, I'll go to that one, that one, two, three punch. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, this is a uh, interesting exposition of tactics. Uh, you impress it is a strategy, but it's not really laid out. I mean, uh, <coughs> all of this, I think, uh, <coughs> involve <coughs> movements from more status to less status yes. positions. Yes. Um, and um, for all of these countries, in terms of what they did in this sort of their in various ways, some of the observations, but, but all involve various kinds of opening to the world. Not in the same way, different ways. But they always had that in common. Another thing they had in common was uh, freeing up labor markets. 
And another was uh, um, increasing savings rates. Uh, and uh, it's a very big deal for China and so on. Uh, they all in, uh, invested in educating at least in the elite. And by elite, I mean uh, <coughs> landowners, but engineers, yeah. these kinds of people. Yes, so you have these sort of common policy with different, with different flavors, not identical, obviously. So they all faced obstacles. This is where you, you come in. Here's how to deal with obstacles. But you don't really say, here's what they were trying to do. Yeah. Overall, I mean, it's impressive. But it might be worth uh, being explicit about it. There are different. There's a new book which I commend to you by William Bobal and Robert Lycan called "Bad Capitalism, Good Capitalism." And um, it's a uh, survey of different brands of different flavors of capitalism. Put it. And uh, your analysis, I think, is compatible, at least, with uh, their description of the different flavors of capitalism. Because they were dealing with somewhat different problems. But overall, they were dealing with a similar problem, how to move towards capitalist system. Yeah, actually, I took, out, I took out one slide here. So yeah, a long presentation. But it showed, uh, uh, in general, it was about breaking monopolies, removing industry quotas and licenses, removing price controls, yeah, privatizing state enterprises, Lowering tariffs, uh, pushing exports, attracting FDI, uh, assuring adequate state revenue, uh, fiscal reform. Yeah, I should put that, that slide in uh, and yeah, rephrase. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's a long presentation. So that, no, that, that, that certainly does fit for us. Thank you. Yes. Thanks, Dennis. I enjoy that a lot. So implicit in your argument, or at least in the way that you frame the question, is that leadership at the very highest level is a Matters. critical factor. Yes. Maybe not always the critical factor, but at least in these cases, it was a critical factor. The question is whether or not, should we draw the conclusion from this that that's the key variable uh, for those of us who are from you know, the outside of the region to be concerned about? Is Are there examples in the region of reform being driven from below, so to speak. In other words, from the mercantile class saying, we want things to open up because we want to be able to export and import. Uh, this is, this is yours, yours sort of prioritizes the technocratic uh, steering hand at the, at the highest levels of government. Well, um, actually, there, were, there are many cases when uh, you had reform from below. In China, they had uh, the violations from the peasants. They would violate the communal system and they got to bless that as the as a pilot projects, and even in, even in India, there's some pressure from from below in, in Vietnam. I'm not implying that uh, leadership is the, the the soul or or the even the main uh, linchpin factor for uh, success. What I'm coming from uh, the point of view of someone who, who deals with politicians, let's uh, <laughs> call them your honor, has to uh, face their committees. It's a <laughs> Yeah, that's my, my practical uh, purpose for this. Yes, sir. You know, your examples uh, are countries displaying varying degrees of authoritarianism. And it relates to the question of where is the strategy and the drive coming from. You would think that that may correlate with the degree of authoritarianism of the government in that particular country. And have you thought of sort of uh, 
allocating your toolkit or thinking about your toolkit in relation to what's available under differing degrees and what works under differing degrees of authoritarian regimes. In fact, my plan was to do it this way, okay, uh, one set for authoritarian autocrats, one set for de democrats. That's the uh, uh, plan A. But it turns out, surprise, they apply to both, uh, most apply to both. Uh, both autocrats and democrats have to deal, have to change uh, the party mindset, have to change uh, the public mindset, have to deal with uh, economic pain. They, they can both stretch definitions, they can marginalize the anti-reform bloc, they can uh, cope as an interest, they can pilot and scale up, uh, dual tracking, forging alliances, a uh, whole list of, uh, okay. of, uh, of common elements. I'm uh, surprised, I thought it would be uh, one for autocrats, one for democrats. Although I have my own theory, uh, a pet theory regarding, uh, regarding that. The autocrats are vulnerable because if you nip the scent in the bud, you can see the, the flaws in your system. You become you you you're blinded by uh, your your success. You can see the flaws in your model. Uh, but the Democrats also um, are are hobbled by big congresses, big uh, parliaments. Uh, the the difficulty of forging consensus. It seems to be that Congress uh, does not really manufacture manufacture laws. Congress manufactures consensus. Any any lawmaker can write a law, but takes Congress to uh, manufacture consensus. I think, well, my own theory is that with uh, technological change, with a rapid technological change, you'll have rapid economic change as well. For example, see what the internet has done to everything, uh, to commerce, to education, uh, governance. I think with rapid technological change, that'll force governments eventually to have smaller uh, parliaments, smaller congresses, to arrive at consensus faster. Uh, yes, sir. I agree with you that the main role of the leadership is very important. And uh, I would like you to comment on two things. The role of long-term strategy, which includes education and economic planning, versus short-term tactics like you know, fiscal reforms or market orientation. That is the reason why, because of the long-term vision of Nehru, you know, who laid the foundation of the future of the country, that plays a very important role. And you see the lack of leadership in Pakistan or Bangladesh, you know, though they were on the same subcontinent, they could not follow that example. And it took 20, 30 years for you know, the reforms in India to, to take shape. And then the short-term tactics were very useful. Yeah, I'm a strong believer in uh, human capital formation, education, investing in uh, human capital. And um, it's beyond Nehru, even, even under Rao, uh, in the stress on its uh, high-tech uh, uh, engineering, engineering education is now uh, paying dividends. Um, so the, on, on the, um, the short term, in fighting poverty, on the short term, it probably be uh, microfinance, on the medium term, infrastructure, on the long term, education. Yes, sir. Um, I, I love the uh, 
way the comparisons that jump out across countries uh, from from what you presented. It's, it, there are lots of really interesting similarities uh, that, that emerge, and one of them that struck me and it was a point that you made about which was the role about of uh, regional governments or local governments, yes. and uh, I think you could argue that in which have the uh, two obvious advantages. One is you know you you subvert the role of the the uh, central government and the bureaucracy in the central government. You go sort of outside their realm. Sometimes it's easier to start reform, as you say, at the periphery. Um, and then I think you get the added element of sometimes regional differences, differences of uh, ethnicity or language or uh, that type of thing create, you know, degrees of autonomy uh, from central control which can be useful. And I thought you can actually argue that India and Vietnam and China all actually show that characteristic quite, quite strongly. In the case of India, actually, which you didn't mention, I mean, a lot of the reform yeah, yeah. process was driven as a result of federalism in India yeah. by state governments, and particularly because in India there's such a strong <coughs> south-north uh, difference. In fact, reform did not go, still is quite retarded in the north, in the Hindi-speaking mm -hmm. north, but reform was really driven out of the south and by particular state governments where reformers had managed to get a hold, or, and also you were drawing on different sets of uh, different interest groups and different sets of resources uh, that were there historically for, for different reasons, like the defense and electronics industry, which was in the South due to the, you know, the way the, Japan, the Indians built their defense industry out of the range of Pakistani aircraft. Um, similarly, in China, you know, you, I mean, I, I don't know that you, you know, the role of, of the South of Guangzhou and Shanghai and the South, the, 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 coast the, the role of of regional governments was clearly pretty essential to, to that process. And Vietnam, I would argue, is really the same thing. I mean, you can look at Vietnamese reform, uh, you mentioned it briefly in one of your slides, uh, the south-north difference. I mean, I think the real driver of reform in Vietnam was in fact the absorption of the south, the failure of the north to actually socialize the south after 1975. And in fact, what happened was that the Southerners came to really drive the, uh, Southerners in the Communist Party came to drive the reform process in Vietnam. And it really, it, most of the initial reforms all came out of South Vietnam, not out of the North. So I mean, you could, I, I don't know that there's comparable things in some of the other countries you mentioned, but I wonder if you, is there, now is that a useful uh, paradigm in the case of, say, the Philippines? Is there something comparable or, or in other, I mean, and, and how essential is that, I guess, would be my other question. You really, uh, could these reforms have succeeded without uh, that kind of local, regional uh, autonomy element to them? Yeah, the great thing about uh, the region, regional element is that you can have innovation sprouting out from each uh, province, and then they can be copied, they can be uh, upscaled. Uh, in fact, in the Philippines, we have this, uh, this best uh, practices award for local governments. That is, they would look for the best practices and then it'll be copied in others. So the dynamic from one region can be uh, multiplied to, to the others. And yes, that's why it's good to have such diversity. Uh, it, yes, uh, the federal, yeah, it's a, I could cover it uh, in just federalism. Uh, it's, it's a long, person, it's a long, it's a very wide ranging uh, report. So I, I can go into detail on that. But yes, uh, the having the local dynamic local innovations sprouting up and being copied by others is a, is a great thing. 
Yes, it's a you. Yeah. May, may I add to the answers of my uh, colleague and uh, countryman? Yeah. I, I, I am a government official, but uh, this is not an official government statement. I am here as a history professor in the university, which uh, Mr. Roy and I uh, went to together in uh, high school. Uh, the problem in the Philippines is uh, we aim to reform through the leadership, and I don't think uh, our president, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, who shares the same name with our speaker. No relation, no relation. I don't think she's lacking expertise. She's a PhD in economics mm -hmm. from the same university where Mr. Arroyo and myself went to, same university where Marco studied. In fact, she was a professor of economics when we were students in the 80s. So I think she has enough, I think, economic background and uh, understanding to make these report reforms. The problem is, in the Philippines, some of these reforms, you can prepare a five-year plan, and then when leadership is changed, all of these are junk. In fact, we're notorious for preparing five-year economic, economic development plans every two years. <laughs> so leadership is essential in the Philippines. You have to convince the leadership to stick to the plan. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, if uh, President Arroyo, her term is coming up, is about to end in uh, 2010, mm. so if, if you want to make any suggestions, you aim for the next group of leadership. Because there's no sense dealing with her at this point, because she'll be gone by June 30, 2010. Her term is over, she's been there for uh, uh, seven years, she's completing nine years, Okay, and that uh, she cannot run anymore mm. unless she changes the law. Oh, please. Uh, <laughs> so I think in, in our experience in the Philippines, you have to deal with the leadership if you will change reform from the bottom. <coughs> now, to add to the comment about the <coughs> local reforms and the local level, I myself come from a local area in the Philippines. I was explaining with Professor Emerson. I come from the Bicol region. I come from the periphery, the very edge of southeastern Luzon, from the province of Sorsogon. Uh, Mr. Arroyo's parents are also from that region. And uh, our experience is sometimes it's more effective to begin in the periphery, in the locality, and we have very good local leaders, but uh, when you have to bring it up to the national level, somewhere along the way, uh, you lose steam. But lately, our local government leaders have been focusing their efforts in their localities because they have greater control. In fact, uh, lately, there seems to be more dynamism, more changes, more economic reforms at the local level than there are at the national level. Because there, there, there are probably this greater leeway uh, insofar as the local government leaders are concerned. That, that's, that's all I can say. Yeah, in fact, the World Bank has been uh, it's, uh, shifting its lending from national to more local. The, the, under the theme of um, islands of good governance, they're, uh, they're focusing on islands rather than uh, the, the entire nation. Yes, Dennis, you just mentioned uh, the World Bank, and I'm curious, one of the slides you, you, you used the IMF bogeyman thing as a, uh -huh. as a tool in your arsenal. Yes, yes. If you can't sell it locally, blame it on somebody in Washington. <laughs> and the IMF has now a new set of programs. Since there's so much liquidity sloshing around, nobody needs their money, and they're laying off staff left, mm -hmm. right, and center. But they're trying to remarket themselves as essentially that type of an actor by having these cash free, in other words, they don't provide you any any uh, money, um, but they provide you a kind of a blueprint and a bunch of technical assistance advisors. In your view, uh, in 
since we're talking about the, 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 the Philippine case in particular, is that an appealing thing to consider? Is, it, is, it, is there a role in, in the region that you've studied for an IMF program with no money? How does that differ from the World Bank's way of operating, what you just described? Because the World Bank would typically you know, focus on things like uh, infrastructure development and, and budget, and the IMF would focus on, on kind of macro policy and monetary policy. Well, it can help the, the periphery or the local, the provinces to, um, to be aligned with the national uh, reform agenda. That is, even with the money, they must still follow the, the World Bank aspirations, uh, the World Bank uh, managerial uh, steps, the, the good governance safeguards uh, under the World Bank. So that will help uh, steer uh, le less corruption and more adherence to uh, the national agenda, I, I think. Yeah. Um, two things, if I could. I want to go back to Ari's comment. Um, one vision of your topic is that there are certain enlightened and you know, wisely Machiavellian <laughs> individuals who have a vision and who are proactively implementing that vision of reform. <clears throat> But there's a different interpretation, which is that not too many people have a vision, and the visions are fuzzy and unclear, and maybe they conflict. But what happens is a crisis of some sort concentrates political attention on shortcomings within the system. And reform, rather than being a means to some envisioned result, is a response to crisis circumstances. And we can point out a number of cases without going into the details. Um, where that is true. And I wonder if you go back over your cases and you sort them on that variable, whether reform looks more reactive or more proactive. And the second question I have, in terms of the irony of reform. I mean, I think it's fair to say that reform is a process. It's not sort of, you know, like giving birth. Once you give birth, that's it. The birth is over. <laughs> no, uh, it's an ongoing process. And sometimes, presumably, it generates unexpected consequences which then require additional reforms. Uh, uh, I think, you know, I'll just make one comment on Malaysia. You include Malaysia under the reform category with regard to what Mahathir did, but you could argue that opening up the economy, uh, making it attractive to foreign investors on the basis of a bargain whereby the Chinese minority benefited enough that at least until the March 8th election <laughs> uh, a few weeks ago, uh, it was willing to go along with an utterly invidious system with regard to officially entrenched racial discrimination in favor of the Malays. Now, that discrimination violated market principles. So under the guise of a reform that, you know, sort of introduced the market as the kind of governing mechanism, there was a fundamentally anti-market uh, restriction which kept, of course, those folks in UMNO, who were getting, as you point out, richer and richer and richer, happy. So one of the ironies is you buy off potential opponents, but then who's co-opting whom? And what are the consequences down the road that you might have to deal with? On the point of crisis, well, <coughs> you had uh, India going through its, uh, the main stimulus for its reforms was the, uh, the public deficit crisis in uh, the 1990s. Uh, while Vietnam, uh, hyperinflation, while uh, Singapore, independence, and uh, the withdrawal of the British bases. But um, 
but despite that, you can you must also appreciate uh, having a crisis is no guarantee okay, that you'll uh, you pull these reforms. For example, Japan, they have this big uh, this big debt, this big fiscal problem, and yet uh, they're having a hard time with their uh, fiscal reforms, despite despite the people knowing that they have a big uh, fiscal problem. So, uh, so having the crisis is no guarantee that uh, the people or the, or the party can uh, will actually act. Now, on your, your point regarding uh, Malaysia's uh, co-opting, yeah, yeah, ironies of reform that have to be taken care of. I meant it to you that I was not happy with my Malaysia sector. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, that's not a criticism. I'm just yeah, I, I know, but it, I, um, I still haven't so I haven't I haven't resolved that yet actually. Uh, if I was tempted to take up the, the, Malaysia, the Malaysia slide in the presentation. Comment on the shock that I, <clears throat> you didn't mention, I think, you know, but it, the 97-98 uh, financial crisis and its after effects. Take Korea. Yeah. I mean, it did really do a lot of good things for the Korean economy. I mean, the changes that were made. Now, the Korean economy hasn't performed spectacularly well since then, but a lot better than Japan has at least. So, uh, arguably, the, the response in Korea to that shock was a positive response. And it was a big shock mm -hmm. to the system. And also Indonesia. Yeah, Indonesia was really... Indonesia, uh, better example. Yes, yeah, and go through the Asian, Asian crisis. Uh, but, but yes, they're a big stimulus to uh, further reform. Okay. Well. This is one of the most timely and, I must say, stimulating conversations we've had in quite a while. I thank you very much. And Before we break up, I'd like to thank Jerry Martin from the Asian Foundation and his colleague for driving down from San Francisco and for making it possible for us at Schoenstein A. Park to host Dennis O'Reilly. Yes, Mr. Martin and Judith Chen over there in the back. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.